When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In celebration of opening day, we've got a special episode of The Moth Podcast for you. The theme is baseball and the surprising ways it connects people. I gaze out at the players on the field and then I, uh, I look over at my dad and I, I realize that in the silence between us that something has changed. It's like I'm seeing him for the first time. Two stories about baseball, family, and so much more. The episode's available right now. Subscribe to The Moth Podcast to make sure you hear it. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. Boring, boring. Okay, one thing the game needs is more people like you. You, you. Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. Here's Saul Tlamachia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to Baseball Isn't Boring. Here's your host, Rob Radford. All right, baseball isn't boring. Um... In large part because smart people. Ben Sherrington is a smart guy. He's also one of my favorite GMs. I'm biased, though, because we've been around a long time. By the way, Ben, 20th anniversary of when I put you in a book for the first time ever. Right? Wow, that's quite a marker on the calendar. (laughs) We, We go back. And I remember the ch- we did Chasing Stein. Well, we didn't do it. it wasn't it was, you did not co-author Chasing Steinbrenner with me? But you did help out quite a bit. You were a passage in it. It was back, it was back in two thousand three. Uh, what a what a time that was! Like I remember, and I was fortunate enough to be up there for a trade, which I'm sure Theo was thrilled about. Just the one day I was up there, the big uh, crustacean creation, which is the Scott Sauerbeck trade, and um, uh, and I remember Ben being struck by, first of all, you know, you had Jed Hoyer and Josh Burns in the same room, like in almost in a room that almost like desk couldn't, they had to like butt up against each other. That's right. And, and then, and then you come in and I think it was Anastasio Martinez, man, I have a good memory. And it's like, we get it. And you come in and Theo's sitting there and you said to him, cause you were the farm director and you say, sorry, you know, uh, Theo said to you, he was like, oh, sorry, we got to include Anastasio Martinez. And you would say, well, you know, that's what how the deal works or whatever. And it's, it's that whole scene, and it was chaotic and everything. And you've been through a million of them, but I have not. But it's sort of like it checked off all the boxes of how a, a front office works together when a trade is going down. I mean, I don't, I don't expect you to remember that moment, but still – I do. I, you're bringing me back. I, I do remember it. I specifically remember talking to Theo about Anastasio Martinez, who was probably someone at the time as farm director that I was clinging on to too tightly. Um, and, oh, so and, that's that's why he apologized to you, seriously? Well, no, but I, it, to Theo's credit, he was so good at that. Like he he understood the attachment that different people would have to a player, whether you were a scout or in player development or anybody who might have some. Uh, attachment to a player, he, you know, he, he was he was very good at understanding if whenever we made a trade, even if the trade really made sense, that it was going to be difficult for some people in the organization. And he was uh, he was always great. He had a very nice touch about him uh, in handling those situations, making sure people 
knew that um, he was thinking about them and, and, and seeing these players leave. And of course, um, that was a relatively small trade you described, but like think about some of the oh. massive ones that he pulled off. And uh, it was yeah, it was a remarkable time to be with the Red Sox through those years uh, working with Theo and um, just a, an incredible collection of folks. Well, another, th- another thing I remember, Ben, is like in that dynamic, and you say how Theo sort of going to checking off all the boxes. It's not just like, okay, we need a guy. We're going to get this guy. It was also um, Brandon Lyon was in the deal. And I remember him saying, it's like, yeah, the, the, the guys in the clubhouse, this is going to like, they're not going to like this because he was a popular guy. I mean, that this is like all of this is factored in. He's going to you about Anastasio Martinez. He understands the effect it has on the clubhouse. Uh, I think Je- I'm trying to talk to Jed Hoyer is like politely saying, um, I actually have to some faxes to get off or whatever it was. That's how long ago it was. But yeah, so there's a lot that I would have, yeah. And you've been, yeah, you know, I mean, you're, you're opening a window into, um, you know, why he's been so successful. He, he, Theo had this, you know, he's not the only one, but he's, he's one of, he's one of the few folks who have done that job so well that, um, can kind of combine like just this incredibly clear, objective, hard analytical thinker with like a clear, precise idea on value and be sort of ruthless in pursuing it with, uh, this incredible humanity and being able to understand things like that, you know, the impact in the clubhouse and how to, how to manage that also so it's it's um it's you know the, the great the great ones can do both of those things did, did were you ever the one i mean when you obviously as a gm probably have had to go down and deal with that sort of clubhouse dynamic before right i mean yeah well, uh, what, what yeah. was one what was one that re, you remembered it saying sort of you know and and, and obviously uh around boston this this time or even in the trade deadline, it was the Bog dealing with Vasquez gets traded. Um, so you have to deal with Bogarts being upset. I mean, what do you have an instance of where you had to sort of put out that fire? Well, it was quite a, obviously quite a roller coaster during the time I was in that job in Boston. And, you know, from I, I had sort of extreme ends of it, right? So, so the, the Dodgers trade in August of um, 2012, uh, which was unique because of the, the mechanics of it, you know, it's not, that wasn't one way we could sort of get ahead of the communication because we were literally waiting on waiver results for, you know, to find out if the deal went through. So very, 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 very small circle of people knew about it really that we couldn't afford um, until it actually, until the waivers got through. So I, it was, and then once that happened, once the waivers went through, it was, you know, very trying to get to communication really fast. Um, so that was it. That was a unique, and and I think at that point, obviously things weren't going well, and I think there was a sort of general understanding in the clubhouse that something was going to need to change. But um, you know, people didn't anticipate something quite like that that quickly. Uh, so that in that case, it was more about like the week after that, like the the follow up conversations with Pedroia and Lester and those guys explaining like hey, what what this means and what it didn't mean. We sort of had to deal with it in the aftermath, and then. Uh, the next year, obviously, we're in it, and we're able to add PV um, close to the deadline, and that was the other end of the spectrum where, you know, there's a group who really believed in themselves, and you know, we were in it, we were playing well, and you know, but but saw that I think as like one more signal from the front office or ownership or wherever that okay, now we're all in it. Now we now now all the all hands and feet are in on this, and 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 there's only one thing to do, and that's literally what the guys were saying in the clubhouse after that trade. And then of course the following year we fall short again 
and made some really difficult uh, trades involving people that we all cared about so much. And that was, that was hard again in the, in the, in the other way. So yeah, I experienced the full range. Of, yeah, man. Of this. That's so bad. I mean, this is the. There's so much. Obviously, there's so many parts of your job that you have to deal with, and the people aspect of it, if of doing all those, the different levels of it, and different approaches of it, but then actually having to talk to the guys. And you bring up. So I do want to get into sort of your approach, and this isn't all going to be Red Sox centric, but. Uh, but since you brought it up, you know, I, I I do later a little bit later want to get into your approach about that heading into 2013 um, season, that off season, because it was sort of unique about where you had this money to spend and the way you chose to spend it. But you reminded me something I had no intention of bringing up. But during the World Series, after a World Series game, uh, the Baseballs and Boring podcast had on both Nick Punto and Josh Beckett live. <laughs> Right. So, so all we were missing with Carl Crawford, Adrian Gonzalez, but those two were good. And Beckett told this story. Now, you can confirm, you can deny, I don't know. He said that he wasn't going to agree to the trade because he had, I think, 10 five rights um, because he didn't want to pay taxes in Los Angeles. And Carl Crawford called to offer to pay for his taxes. <laughs> I never heard that before. Oh. <laughs> I've never heard it. It's possible. Um, I, I remember. I do remember those conversations one at a time happening. And the Carl was like literally in surgery uh, when it happened. We we literally had to wait for him to come out of anesthesia to have the conversation with him about the trade. And I felt horrible about the timing. It's just like you know we had no control of that. It was obviously a, they wouldn't you know couldn't have happened without him in the deal and. Um, so I remember walking through that with him and his agent at the time. I had not heard that about the, <laughs> the sure. Well, see, there you go. You learn something new every day. Um, and also I want to, before I forget, you talk about working with Theo, obviously you went to Toronto, you worked with the people up there. Uh, we had on Alex Anthopoulos and this is maybe the most important part of this entire conversation. Anthopoulos almost came through the screen when I said that, that ketchup flavored t- potato chips were disgusting. <laughs> so now, as as a New Englander, but someone who has worked extensively up in Toronto, you are the you are, you are the deciding vote, yay or nay, on ketchup flavored potato oh, chips. Boy, um, there's so many things I love about Toronto and Canada, <laughs> but I, I don't know that I had a single ketchup flavored. T- I do I do remember them floating around the office. So look, I generally have a. Uh, I generally have a, uh, a, a positive uh, feeling disposition towards all of our Canadian uh, brothers and sisters, w- wonderful people. So if they feel that strongly about ketchup flavored potato chips, I got to be on board with that. Is, that is the ultimate like talk show. The caller calls up and says, I like you personally. Uh, I respect your opinion, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Um, all right. I do want to get into some of the stuff that here and now, and I'm just going to touch on two sort of newsworthy items. And one of them, the first one is going to, I'm going to ask you about is sort of what we just talked about, um, which is managing a personality, managing personalities. Brian Reynolds, evidently, you know, he had, uh, through a source reportedly had asked to be traded, um, three years left to become a free agent, obviously a great, great player. Uh, and I just, from your perspective, um, how do you handle like that? Is another unique situation, right? I mean, it's there's so many you, God, there's so many unique situations which like I keep popping up in my head with your job. 
So I'm with you. I'm with you. But so how do you, how do you have, first of all, did you ever, have you ever had to deal with something like that before or was that a unique situation for you? Um, yeah, this one's been unique and I'll, I'll try to come back and answer your question. Although maybe I'll never quite get to answering your question, but okay. right. <laughs> I think that's, this isn't specific to Brian, but just sort of generally, uh, because the, the back, there's a backdrop there where, um, you know, it's, it's no secret that, uh, and I've said publicly that, you know, our, our first choice has been to, um, have Brian here for a long time and, and, and including hopefully through an extension, we've made efforts to do that. Unfortunately, uh, haven't been able to accomplish that, um, to this point. And so there's that background. And then, um, and then, um, there is, there's a request and what is that based on? And, and so you have two different th- things, really you have, you have the contract background and then request and, and, and the trade scenario, both of those things by themselves are, they're so hard to do justice, um, talking out loud about because um as you know there's like just so much nuance and so many variables um whether you're talking about you know someone's contract or you're talking about potential trade there's so many nuances so many variables um and it's so personal um and and so i've always found that it's just it's really hard to do justice to either one of those topics from my perspective publicly never mind both at the same time um, which is why I've basically just not tried to, uh, because I think I'll not be, not be helping the situation if I do. Um, which leads me back to the answer. Hopefully the answer is that, um, in this case, as in any case, you know, where my energy would go would be, Hey, let's just make sure we're doing everything we can to, um, um, to, to, you know, keep the door of communication open. And so that, any player in this case, Brian, but any player um, feels like he can express anything they want to express, you know, Um, good things, bad things, frustrating things, anything in between. And um, that's, that's, that would be our desires to keep that door of communication going. And um, because it, well, it doesn't guarantee anything of all, you know, I've always felt, and I probably, I probably do take this from Theo um, that if you keep the door of communication open, then, you just tend to keep more paths open, um, you know, because because ultimately, like, um, although the the way <laughs> the way things get executed and exactly what the outcomes are, um, sometimes there'll be differences. But um, we really mostly want the same things. You know, we want players to do really well, which means they're going to earn a lot of money over time. We want the team to do really well. Um, players want the team to do really well. They want to have they want to earn what they earn and what, what's fair. And, and they have a short window to do that. So um, it's all sort of, it all makes sense in that standpoint, but um, in individual cases, sometimes there can be uh, frustrations, emotion, uh, disagreements sometimes. And um, I, I would, I would just strive to keep the door of communication as open as we possibly can in those situations and not talk about it publicly because it's just, it's just hard to, it's hard, it's hard to do that well enough with all the, the nuance um, involved to, you know, to make, to, to help totally understand why you or others or, you know, the public sphere would want to talk about it publicly as a fan. I'm a, like, if I'm a fan of a, you know, sport, a team, another sport, let's say, well, of course I'm a, every time I see a, an article about like, 
you know, who's in the trade rumors, who's going, who's coming. Of course, I'm going to click and reread. It's like totally get it. It's part of the business where it's part of the fun of the business. Um, so I guess we all have different roles. In that. I thought for a second you were going to loop back to catch a flavor potato chips, honestly. Like, I, <laughs> I thought, I'm like, there at some point. I'm like, here he comes. Uh, but you mentioned extensions. So obviously you said you tried, you tried, and this is always a, a really interesting topic. Again, when we, I talked about with uh, Alex Antopoulos, who's had a really good run of them. Um, you've done, you've done extensions. Um, you've seen, even when you were in the Red Sox front office before, there was the one that I always <laughs> reference, and Theo was really good at this, right? Like he was hitting the sweet spot on a lot of guys. And and so you must have had the one that always and Beckett was on with us a second Josh Beckett reference I apologize, um, but he said he's he I, I'm not really paraphrasing he actually said it. he's like they were geniuses they were geniuses back in 2006 where I had a five ERA in in July. And, uh, you know, all of that. And Terry Francona walks out to me in BP and said, wouldn't you like an extension? And it's like, of course I would like an extension. First of all, do you remember that? I mean, you guys. I don't I don't remember. The, I, don't, I don't remember the timing of Tito's conversation, although I totally believe that happened. Um, I do remember the timing of the extension. And I remember the conversations that were going on in the background. And, and I, I remember distinctly, actually, you know, to the, the staff's credit, Tito and the coaching staff's credit, they deserve a lot of credit for a lot of things. Um, but I remember during that time um, hearing back consistently um, that, you know, whatever the numbers, Josh's numbers were that year, um, that he was really, he was really gaining trust and respect inside that clubhouse. Um, I know, you know, Tito spoke very favorably, you know, of the competitor and the adjustments he saw him make and still felt like, Every time this guy hits the mound, we got a chance to win. Um, so there are things sort of underneath the hood uh, for the staff, certainly, that we were getting back that gave us a good feeling. And then in baseball ops, um, it wasn't so much me at that time, but certainly Theo and, and other folks were digging into um, some of the metrics and and believed. And, and, and he was at a good age, and the velocity was there. We just we saw, we saw the arc going in a positive way. Uh, and then, of course, it wasn't that long after that that, you know, in October 2007, we, you know, just it wouldn't have happened, you know, unless he was on that team, as we all know. Ben, you know, I, I, I've done, I did the math. You guys, he finished second to Cy Young the following year. You guys saved yourself like seventy million dollars. So, but that, but you know, and I'm not saying asking you to confirm that. But that's I, the whole. I, I, I certainly cost the Red Sox someone on some others, but no. Nah, well, I think you're the plus. I think you, think your plus minus is good. Um, but. To go back to sort of the here and the now, do you find it differently? Like, to me, there was this cycle maybe before the last CBA or where players maybe were a little more more hesitant. Um, now you see these really young players jumping at it, and it seems to be more aggressive to it. Right, the here and the now, what's your perspective of how you think? And I know that the easy answer is a case-by-case basis, but overall – like you've gone through different waves of this. Where is it right now in terms of yeah, accepting think, extensions? I think it has changed a bit. I mean, I, look, there's a lot of there's a lot of sophisticated folks in every role in the game, right? Players included that are um, in tune with the analysis and projecting, you know, what a player's performance and r- related to that earnings could be if 
things go in a certain direction and health stays there and all that. So there's, there's the, you know, there's, there, there, there's, it doesn't happen anymore really that, um, you know, there's going to be any party to that conversation that doesn't have a pretty good handle on the, the value and, and the risk associated. And it just comes down to that. It's, it's a matter of managing the sort of upside and the risk. And from a player's perspective, um, timing and, um, you know, sort of like what, what, what is the player valuing at different points in their career? I, I think it's probably instructive that recently it seems like um, the, you know, the, the sort of certainly strong majority of those types of uh, deals are coming earlier in a, in a player's career. And, you know, maybe that's a way a player and team kind of share risk and still in a lot, in a lot of those cases probably still leaves open the possibility of another contract down the road if things work out, but if it doesn't work out, then the player's got, you know, what he needs for a lifetime. And, you know, in some cases, you know, generations of, of lifetimes. Um, so it's, it's, it, it, ultimately it's, it's the, what hasn't changed is, is that it's a, it's a very personal thing. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not my contract. It's not the pirates contract. It's not the Red Sox contract. It's an individual player's contract. And ultimately, you know, I, I've always felt like our job is to, when we can, basically provide a choice and make that choice as compelling as we can, but it is a choice and the player deserves the right, you know, to make that choice. And certainly, um, you know, uh, when players have performed well and been reliable at a earlier in their careers, they think they have earned the right to make that choice and hopefully they get that choice. And um, in our case with the pirates, we hope over time that we'll, we'll be able to find some common ground with, with, with guys over time. We, we, we got there with Brian Hayes last spring. Um, certainly want to find ways to do more of those as we go forward. All right, two more Pirates questions, the first one being the most important. Um, we like to we like to hear at the podcast, like to make dreams come true. Um, so do, are you putting Rich Hill next to Mike Burroughs? In the in the in spring training in the yeah, locker room. Well, this is my first day in my little office at Leacom. Well, you're, you're in Bradenton. Oh, all right, all right. And when I leave this podcast, I will take a right hand turn, walk into the locker room area, and find out exactly where they are. Um, although we're uh, we're actually lockering over at Pirate City for the first ten days, so um, I don't know where they are over there. But uh, when it gets to Leacom, I'll see if I can put a word in and get those two together I, I did enjoy listening to the the podcast when you had them both it was on. fun there I mean, i'm not just saying that because it that was, was like cool. it was like real-time mentoring it was good that was, that was really cool yeah yeah all right well now i'm going to ask you about the wbc which is like probably not so cool um so just take me through if you can about the g-man Choi the conversation the decision um how i i know that he was disappointed but uh, and and obviously you have to protect your team. So just take me through that. What that was all about? Yeah. Um, so I mean, a couple a couple important pieces of context. Probably one is that uh, Gmon had a an elbow procedure earlier this off season, and uh, that was something that was planned after his season ended in Tampa. We were aware of it at the time of the deal. Kind of went through that. We knew what you know, roughly what the recovery was going to look like coming into 2023. And he's on pace with the recovery, um, but it hasn't been a sort of totally normal offseason. So um, it's not uncommon, I don't think, when players have something like that 
inside and off season that um, the team would have some concern about participation in WBC. Um, and then maybe the other piece of context is that I think sometimes it's, you know, you know, what one can be disappointed and also understand, and those are two different things. Both can be true at the same time. Um, I, I believe that Jimon understands why he's not participating in WBC, but um, he could still be disappointed. And, um, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's, he's a proud uh, South Korean and, and that's a team that um, obviously he's got a, a, a personal emotional attachment to, and they're going to be playing a tournament that people care about. And I totally get it. I think, uh, you know, overall um, we want to put him in the best possible position to have a successful season. Um, he's heading into, you know, as of now, anyway, he's heading into free agency after the year. I know that's important to him to have a successful season. Um, and I think, um, so I, I'm, I'm confident that, you know, we're, we're in a good spot with Jimon. He understands even if he's disappointed. Um, broadly speaking, we're very supportive of WBC. We've been uh, very supportive of our players and staff uh, participating. We got a lot of players and staff participating. And generally, I think that that's the way it ought to be. You know, it, it, it's a, it is an event that um, we can only make as big a deal as it, it ought to be if most of the time, if possible, the players are, are participating. I know that's important for the league. I know the players association cares about that. Um, it's probably, to be honest, like from going from farm director to my chair now, and maybe through, you know, with benefit of some wisdom and gray hair, like um, I probably see it differently now than I would have 10 years ago too. Like this is in some ways bigger than, any one team. Uh, if it's good for baseball, it means it's good for all of us, and we want the tournament to be as successful as possible. Yeah, when Daisuke came back throwing 80, you guys probably were not like uh, looking at that as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you guys, so you guys are good. You and G Man, your guys are good. You and G Man Choi, and everybody's good. I, I believe so. He, I have not seen him yet in Bradenton, but I look forward to doing so. All right. Okay. All right. Um, and like you said, the WBC has probably is, is interesting because I think that and this is a whole other conversation, but like the, the perception of it has changed. I was railing. I, I remember that 2009 one. Forget about Daisuke. I remember because they were asking guys to go play on artificial turf nine innings in early March. And I remember Pedroia got like banged up. I think it was an oblique. Euclid got banged up. You know, the, the track record of pitchers were terrible combat WBC. But I think la the last one maybe took it a step in the right direction of how to – I think Adam Jones said this, is that they learn how to prepare better for it. Like it wasn't just, okay, show up, you know, so. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Both the, you know, the folks that are organizing the event itself and the league office, the the staffs that make up the coaching staffs of, of each team and certainly the communication between the organization and, and the teams and the players themselves way ahead of in terms of preparation and just the, the schedule itself. Once you get into it and, you know, um, thoughtful considerations around, you know, volume work volume and recovery and all that uh, we're, we're way ahead of, of where it started. It ought, it ought to be something that's, you know, just as safe to participate in for for a healthy normal player, uh, just as just as safe to participate in as uh, a spring training game in Grape Food League would be. And um, as long as we can sort of keep it on that playing field, then um, it ought to be an event we can all support. 
Well, last thing, you've been very generous for the time, as always, um, is going back to the, the 2013 team um, and building that team. I think this this is a conversation that that is important because it's, it's, there's different ways to build a team, and that was a perfect example. When you get the money off of the Dodgers trade, and I remember, like, the thing, it, it, it wasn't really unlike, you know, a lot of the teams now. You free up money, you go after, oh, they're going to go after the big guy. I think that year maybe it was Josh Hamilton. I don't know. Like, but you, what you ended up doing was you got key pieces. You got David Ross and Victorino and Napoli and all these guys. When you go into that offseason, was, did you say, this is how we're going to build it? Now, I would say this. It's imp- probably important to have the foundation guys like the Ortiz and the Pedroys and those guys. But did you did you go into that saying, listen, we don't run isolation for outfielders. I love that term. I copyrighted it. Um, we need a lot of help in a lot of different ways, including in the clubhouse. So this is how we're going to spread out the money. And was there anything to, to learn in, in the years since then from doing it the way you did it on that way, the World Series? Um, I don't know the last part of your question, but I think everything else you said resonates and particularly um, the part about uh, the, the core that still existed. That was, that was the most important thing in the whole offseason planning was that, you know, after the trade happened with the Dodgers, uh, we believed and believed going into that offseason that we had the core uh, and that core was still at a point in their careers where, you know, we could win with that core. You mentioned some of the names uh, Pedroia, Lester, Euclid, uh Ortiz, Ellsbury was still, you know, there's, there was a really talented group of core guys on that team that gave us a chance to win, we believe. So it wasn't, we didn't, we didn't think that we needed to restructure the core, so to speak. We needed to build a team around that core. Um, so that was the first thing. And then as we got into the planning, I do remember the, the other thing that sort of like, there were two things that kind of like kept rolling around in our heads. And I remember a lot of days sitting inside a conference room with that group of people and ownership was in and out and Bill James was in and out. We had a lot of input. Um, The two things that kept resonating, like, you know, build the deepest roster we possibly can um, with the resources we have. Um, And we need to get the energy back on the field. We had gone from, you know, the September 2011 thing that happened through 2012 and it's not any one person's you know issue or fault or responsibility but for a variety of reasons um, we went through a period of time when there just wasn't enough energy on the field on playing games we needed to get the energy back on our, our collective energy back on the field playing games where it where it belonged back on the game and so that was ringing around our head deepest roster possible and a collection of players that would help us put the energy back on the field where it belonged. Um, the more energy on that, the less energy on other stuff, the better chance we have to prepare and execute and win, we believed. And so it, it kind of came together like that. And um, it was noticeable even like way before some of the events of the regular season happened. Uh, I still remember even in spring training, like things that happened that, you you know, you looked at and heard, well, that's that sounds different than, you know, what we're used to in a typical spring training, like like there was a there was a heightened sense of of just a heightened focus on what was happening on the field, and I do think that was intentional. But you know, totally full credit to the players and the coaching staff and John for making that actually live out for 162 games. Do you think that you, do you think that um, 
that teams across the board are valuing clubhouse presences like they did back then. Um, my take on this is real quick, Ben. I think it's coming back a little bit. I think it's a little bit cyclical. I think people fell in love with the idea of projecting, projections, 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 and maybe uh, devaluing the clubhouse. In other words, you, you know, you're not going to have, I don't know, I'm not going to name names, but it's just you're not going to have like the veteran guy. Uh, it, instead, you're going to have the guy with the five ERA who you think can change something and be good. Um, now I feel like there's more like you guys, and I'm not saying this is why you got Rich Hill, but we mentioned Rich Hill is a is a valued guy in that clubhouse. McCutcheon, valued guy. Do you think it's coming back a little bit that way, or am I off base in anything I said? No, I think I think you know you're not off off base at all. And I'll I'll, I'll I'll get to a longer answer, but it reminded me of something that Mark Shapiro. Uh, it's a story he's told. He shared it with me um, when Mark was in his first year as GM with Cleveland. He ran into Pat Gillick um, somewhere at a game, and obviously Pat was a Hall of Famer, and so Mark was going to take you know took advantage of that opportunity. Ask him, hey, like, what's your secret? Like, what you know when you think about players or teams? Like, what what do you what brings what what's, what are your anchors? And Pat said, um, well, you just want players you can trust, and that trust word does sort of sum up a lot, right? Uh, now, in order to trust player, player, part of trusting a player is, is the performance. It's the, it is the production on the field and it's what you can project the production to be. So that's where the models and uh, predictions are so important and so valuable because um, we still need to start there. What, what is the, what is the performance going to be on the field and how do we sort of predict that as best we can? That's part of trust, uh, but certainly there's another element of trust, and that is, you know, what is the player going to do sort of from the time he wakes up to the time he goes to sleep to help himself, help our team, um, you know, do whatever he can to be the producer on the field that we know he can be, but also be, you know, a, a, an additive in the clubhouse and whatever else that comes with that. Um, so I think it's absolutely teams, something that teams are – thinking about a lot, the, the, the trouble is um, the trouble is being precise and, and, in predicting, you know, that side, you know, we all, both of us, you know, and, and probably even the two of us included, we're, we're, we're not the same person at every point in our life. Um, well, it's the same with baseball players. They're not going to be the same exact, in most cases, there's probably some exceptions, hmm. but in a lot of cases, just like all of us humans, um, they're not going to be the exact same human in every single season because like all of us humans, there's other stuff going on. You know, there's things in our life that are pulling at us or there's something personal that's pulling at us or, you know, we're not, we're frustrated with our performance or the role we have or whatever it is um, that has an impact on our behavior, on our energy, you know, like it would on any of us. So that's why it's so hard to predict um, when you're around, when you, you know, when you're around, um, you know, David Ross or Shane Victorino or Ryan Dempster in the clubhouse that year, you could see it, you know, right? Like you could feel the impact that they were having, not just on the field, but with the room. And so if you knew that, you know, when you're up close and per when you're up close to it, you can see it, feel it. And there's no question there's value to it. It's harder to predict it, um, advance, um, because us humans are complicated, <laughs> but, but I think every team is certainly trying to get closer to 
getting that right. And absolutely, it's a factor in, in decision making, and it ought to be. Well, that's a really good answer, by the way. Excellent job. You're you're off and running in your in your spring training. You 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 your A game first day in Bradenton. So I appreciate it, Ben. I appreciate it, man. It's it's good to talk to you, and um, I think we solved a lot of the world's problems today. So I enjoyed it. Send me a T-shirt. 